Test one, two. Okay, we on here? We ready? I don't hear it in my earphones. We all deserve to be accepted for who we are, and we all need support if we want to learn, grow, and contribute to society. However, your child is going to face immense pressure to change and to be different. They're going to encounter situations that directly and indirectly tell them that how they think and feel doesn't have a place. I know because I'm autistic. As a child and adolescent, all I wanted was to be like someone else. This is part two of Healing in the Church. So that means if you did not hear part one, you should go back to the episode right before this one to catch up because we explained where we've sort of been putting these pieces together as a three-part dance. That is dance steps that are layered upon one another. And today is step three. And if you jump in on step three without one and two, it's going to get more awkward than me on a dance floor. You don't want that, I promise. Step one, we looked at healing in the church and some of the issues that arrive regarding our own propensity to pray away from the very places that God is steering. Step two, healing of my friends with disability and some of the painful ways that my friends have been treated as though they were merely a problem to solve. And now, step three, those with disability who do not want to be healed. Here we go. To be honest, I vaguely remember the scene at all, and I certainly do not remember my age. Though let's go with seven. That seems about right. In fact, there are several scenes that blur a bit together. And with that caveat, I'll retell you what I can. My father is on his knees and my mom is by his side. They've grabbed some oil, borrowed from the kitchen, and they're rubbing the smallest portion possible onto me. Because if I had to guess, and I do have to guess, oil's actually very messy, and my mother kept a clean house. So although they were willing in obedience to pray for me and anoint me with oil, precisely as scripture laid out for them to do, on behalf of one you sought healing for, they saw no reason to make a mess. And so they prayed for me, for my hearing, my ears, and just basically me. I was a sick kid. Overall, fine, I guess, but in and out of the hospital from zero to five, more time than any parents would hope for. No diagnosis, just a seizure here, asthma all the time, little time under the oxygen tent, spinal tap there, and the ears. The, the ears were a constant thing. I didn't spend much time in pools as a kid because of them, and if I did, I had to wear earplugs that garnered stares that I began to notice around the age of eight or nine, so I therefore spent less time in the pool after that. So here we are. My dad, a man who will drop the name of Jesus in every encounter that lasts over 30 seconds, a man who cries at the mention of, well, about anything. And though I want to roll my eyes at him 
because we are so very different. When it comes to his faith, I can only say that I admire it. It's real. And so if it says anoint with oil and pray for healing, he heads to the kitchen. And I guess in a way, those prayers worked. Though no obvious miracle came that day, I am a much healthier adult than I was kid. The ears are still a lifelong pain in the butt, but I do not swim in lakes and pretty much never go underwater, and my hearing is way better than it used to be. And I don't know if it was the ear surgery I had in college, or the prayer, or if they formed some sort of tag team duo and worked in tandem, but as for faith and healing, when our first son Elliot was born with trisomy 18, a serious genetic condition that we were told by doctors to expect to take his life before or shortly after birth, I found I, too, believe in a God that can heal. Spending hours pleading on knees and on my face for God to heal my son. I knew he could. When our Elliot left our arms after 99 days on earth, I found this to be the true test of my faith. What would I do with a God who I believed could heal my son, but did not? And here's where I want to make a distinction that has come into view from living in community with my friends with disability over the last 14 years. I wanted healing. Elliot needed it. His life depended on it. And I wanted him to live. I was not seeking to change him, though. I wanted the health issues to be gone. I wanted him to take deep breaths that filled his lungs with air for life. And some of my friends with disability, they have physical needs or issues that they too want to go away. Some of them want to be healed. Emeka, our friend from last episode. Now you're just telling me that I'm not enough who I, as I show up. He wants to walk. He wants healing from an injury that made him unable to walk. But many of my friends, ones that honestly you may be tempted to see as exactly the same as Elliot and as Emeka, they are fundamentally different. They do not want to be healed. They do not have something that they think needs to change. So many of my friends with disability who have Down syndrome or maybe autism, just take two examples that you may be familiar with, they certainly want to live. And they often have health issues they desire to go away and seek help for. But the only thing they are seeking to change is the way they are viewed by those around them, to be accepted, not cured, not fixed. This is where, from my viewpoint, the church has much to learn from listening to disabled voices. All of the so-called dance steps we've layered on up to now has been meant to get us to the place where we could attempt this one a more complex reality. Ready? In a hypothetical parallel universe, where you were praying for my friends with disability who fall into this category of not wanting to be healed, if your prayer for healing would actually work and God would answer it, you have served to make the world a worse place. And you ask God not for a miracle he was seeking, but a removal of something that made you uncomfortable or that you misinterpreted as bad in your haste because you were not willing to listen to the person that you sought to change. 
Tuck into your mic. Test one. T- Whoa. We head back into the studio to discuss a recent New York Times article that grabbed both Jenny and I's attention. That's right. I will be bringing in the one, the only Jenny Mooney, my wife. And for purposes of this podcast, some title or role yet to be determined. Jenny, what do you want your uh, what do you want your title to be? Do you want executive director? I think this is just really important for the podcast. And what am I a producer? Yeah, let's look. Sure. What do you want to be? You're, you're whatever you want to be. Uh, ch- chief pr- production assistant. Yeah, the old <laughs> CPA. You like a chief and assistant in there. That's good. <laughs> chief <laughs> assistant. <laughs> CPA is actually kind of taken, so we'll probably have to work on that. Oh, yeah, that's true. Oops. I can't be. It's a different kind of CPA. Nobody mm-hmm. wants me to be an accountant CPA. No, no we, we don't want that. that. Jenny, not too long ago, we were doing our annual rite of passage where we take the family and we head up to northern Michigan, something we enjoy. And while we were there, I handed you a little article that you proceeded to read the entire thing before I got to finish. Well, it's interesting because you read a lot of articles. Sometimes you'll send me a link. And in this situation, you handed me the article. I think you just wanted me to kind of see it. You know, like on your phone, you handed me your phone. I think you just wanted me to take a peek. But the title alone, like, stopped me in my tracks. I just so vividly remember being intrigued in a way that I could not give you your phone back. So that begs the question, Jenny, what was the title of the article? Dear Parents, Your Child with Autism is Perfect. And then right under it. The only thing I could see, it's like the second sentence, I think it said that you're the chosen one. And I just always feel so many things as Lena's mom, the mom of a child who has autism. And it was like the article had seen so much of what happens in my heart and what I think and see. Well, I knew that you loved it and enjoyed it. And I finally did get my phone back, uh, and I thought we'd do something fun. Madeline, can you hear me? Hello. Yes, I can hear you. I, I know it might be a, l- a little bit awkward for you, or maybe not, but <laughs> I'm just going to ask you to read this beautiful thing that we stumbled upon that you wrote. Sure. Dearest parent of a child with autism, you are the chosen one. Yes, it is your job to guide and support the world's most dynamic, creative, honest and disciplined creature. Congratulations. Being the parent of an autistic child means being the parent of everybody's unacknowledged needs and feelings. It's no small task. Children with autism embody the sensitivities and passions of your friends, family and co-workers only amplified. When they stim in a supermarket queue to release pent-up frustration, or they weep uncontrollably at the dinner table because they can't find the words to express themselves, or they focus on doing what they love for hours on end, they are shamelessly displaying what others are too frightened to.
Is there a story that you have, Madeline, maybe a situation or an example to serve of where you have felt as though um, you were something that needed to be cured or fixed? Well, basically my whole life in almost every environment that I've ever socialized in, worked in, um, studied in, I've been told that I'm, that I'm too much or I'm not meeting the criteria properly or I haven't been told anything but then I've kind of been sh- shut out. You know, I've been quietly excluded over time, I guess, from whatever that space or situation is or that my line of thinking isn't in alignment with what's expected or the thinking that's expected in the situation. The story that comes to mind most vividly was actually when I was at university, although I feel like this situation has reverberations through my entire life and through every situation I've pretty much encountered either. Um, I don't quite know how to encompass all of that, but I'm going to try because I think that this situation is sort of symbolic for a lot of that, which is I was studying Shakespeare. I was doing a unit in Shakespeare, which I love and which I've actually come to understand that a lot of autistic girls and women can really resonate with Shakespeare and the imagery and the rhythm of Shakespeare's plays and writing. That's sort of a later thing I learned. But at the time I was doing a unit in Shakespeare and I'd written an essay. Um, I can't even remember what play it was on or what the deal was, but the professor or the, the head of the subject who was marking the papers sort of brought me into her office and said, she kind of looked at me and she was like, you know, you're clearly not stupid. Like you're clearly really intelligent, but this is not what we want. And I'm either, she said, I'm either going to have to fail you, but then, or give you first class honors. But then I can't do that because you haven't, you haven't, done what we've asked you to do but you've done something else but it doesn't it doesn't work here and I'm at a loss as to how to handle it and that I had in almost I subsequently had in almost every single subject at uni and when as I said when I think about almost every situation in my life whether it is social or romantic or um even with family it's like that is not what is expected here some people might, like her, recognize that there is intelligence to it or wisdom to it or beauty to it or something interesting about it or even just something unique about it. They don't have to like it, but they can recognize that what has come out of me or what is coming through me has value, even if they're not, um, if they don't agree or whatever they can see, but it, it's not what's expected or wanted. And so that yeah, has reverberated throughout my life across every area of my life. But that situation probably sums it up the best. Yeah. And how does that make you feel? Helpless, confused, at a loss, on the outer, 
not seen and not knowing how to carve a path in the world, it feels like I'm constantly having to chase something that it's not possible for me to ever catch up with, to be told that in every circumstance, directly or indirectly, it's like it's like trying to sort of get inside a castle and every way you try, even, and the most frustrating part was in, you know, in my situation and with my intelligence and whatever, you know, I was able to read the criteria. I was able to do what I thought, you know, would be understanding it. Again, this is the same socially or romantically. I'm like, oh, I can see what's going on here. You know, I can put this and this together. I understand. And then I proceed with what I feel to be, you know, the best response given what I can understand. And still I'm just like, this makes no sense to me and to the way that I'm wired, the way that I feel or what I can see. It's like speaking a different language, even though I can technically understand the words, I am at a loss. And so to feel that way, kind of, I guess, I don't like using the word chronic, but it does become a kind of chronic experience when there is no place for the way that I perceive and process information. Like that definitely has a toll and a ripple effect to do with my self-worth. What I see is what I can contribute and its value. It's very easy to question its value when, you know, there are this many hurdles to sort of move through in order to express it in a way that it can be received and heard. Like I have to do a lot of even still like work to kind of build bridges with people so that what I offer or that how I think is received in a way that I hope, you know, meets the criteria spoken and unspoken. So it's simultaneously, yeah, a lot of effort, a lot of work and also an experience of quite profound worthlessness, I guess. When children with autism share what they think, or they melt down, or they run away from school, or they can't stop talking about what they're obsessed with, it is awkward and overwhelming. They express themselves with such rawness that the foundations of society shake. You're not dealing with a person whose social instinct is to lie, conform, manipulate, or intimidate. You're dealing with someone whose instincts are the opposite, and this person's experience of the world is a lot more challenging because of this. Children with autism are wired to express themselves truthfully regardless of the social consequences. This is powerful, and anything powerful needs to be handled with care. Your child needs your protection because feathers will be ruffled and feelings will get hurt. So as I hear you describe that um, with... with, um with the backdrop, a point blank question for you. Do you want to be cured or healed from autism? No. I have no desire to be cured or healed from autism. I have a desire to be brilliant and amazing in my own right and to fulfill my potential and to grow and to learn and to evolve. 
I have no desire to change my autistic nature. I see autism as a very brilliant, very insightful, very sensitive, very perceptive way of being in the world. And I think it's an ingredient that a lot of the situations that I've been describing is missing and could benefit from embracing. So no, I mean, I think there's something to be said for learning about ourselves and figuring out how best to support ourselves and the ways that we're wired and the ways, you know, the best way to eat for optimal energy, the best way to think, to feel empowered, the best way to learn, to feel like we're growing. Like I think that there's something to be said for the power of amazing support, but the fundamental message of having to be cured or changed to me is really damaging and destructive and negative and is based on an assumption that there's something inherently flawed about a person or child. And I don't find that to be helpful. I don't find that to be especially motivating. And I think the ramifications of going down that road or approaching people with that mentality is really, yeah, unhelpful. And I mean, if I applied that to myself on a day-to-day basis, like more than I already do kind of unconsciously, you know, it's so easy to slip into self-doubt and self-loathing and fear. It's hard enough with an attitude that I already have cultivated in my life of hope and possibility and empowerment. You know, I still slip into moments where I feel helpless and scared and out of control and all of those things, even with the backbone of kind of joy and acceptance that I've chosen to define the narrative of who I am. It doesn't help that definitions of autism are clinical and dehumanising. When the medical and scientific establishments have a hold on the narrative of certain types of people, they disempower them and everyone around them. I mean, no one wants their child to be seen as disordered, No one wants them to be underestimated by others and for their identity to be synonymous with being a jerk. So I'd like to add some sparkle to the damaged narrative. There really is no need to cure children with autism or to apologise on their behalf or to change them. All you need to do is listen to them with your heart. Then you need to accept their autistic ways. Because every time they share their needs and every time you do your best to honour those needs, you're honouring the deeper needs of society. Your child might be verbal, non-verbal, aggressive, passive, introverted or extroverted. It doesn't matter. When they only want to wear linen because it feels more comfortable against their skin, they are showing you how to express your own sensitivities and preferences. When they spend all afternoon researching how to reverse engineer Damascus steel, you're being invited to delve into what gives you joy too. And when they're honest with you about what they think and feel, you're presented with an opportunity to be honest with them, with yourself and with others. Above all, when they say no and you listen, it has the power to set you and everyone around you free. So when I think about Arlena, um, it, you know, it 
and I have this conversation with you today. Uh, you know, Lena is is nonverbal, and she definitely communicates. Uh, <laughs> she is nonverbal, and uh, she lets you know what she thinks about what. And um, we call her our nonverbal communicator. Uh, just to be clear. You know, as I think about Lena's life, and she is 13, and we started seventh grade at a new school this year, and, you know, the things that Lena is learning are, her experience of autism looks very different than yours. Um, she probably uh, will not write a book, fair to say. Um, this, is, this would be a little bit more obvious if you knew her. Maybe she'll surprise me. Uh, she probably won't be doing an interview uh, with anybody anytime soon, though she uses a device and communicates with about 50 words on it, uh, which is amazing from where she came from. And so as I hear you describe um, beautiful things can happen when neurodiverse and, and neurotypical people come together, what does that mean for someone like Lena? It's, I think it's easy for me to see with you, or maybe it is easier for someone listening to see from you. You are, um, you know, even your university professor, professors, though they don't know how to grade you, they, they see that there's something brilliant going on, a different way of thinking. Uh, we, we talk, and you're very articulate, very able to describe to me the way that you feel. What in what, from your standpoint, as you think about this wide tent called autism, what do you and Lena share? Different ways of approaching things, different ways of expressing things, different ways of perceiving things, different ways of thinking about things, different ways of opening others up to new realms of understanding is probably what all of thing, all those things I suspect we share in our very unique ways. Clearly Lena and I are enormously different just as two people who I guess are technically neurotypical who might have different, you know, hurdles to overcome in society in a similar but different way are we're incredibly different. You know, I often use the metaphor of like a diamond and there are many, many different facets to the diamond. And Lena and I are definitely different facets to the autism diamond. And we both have our role and our place. And I guess it's about the celebration of what we in all of our uniqueness have to offer you know, there's no one who's more or less deserving of understanding and acceptance and being celebrated by those who are different from them. So, you know, Lena sounds incredible and sounds like someone I'd want to meet because I have, you know, there's a kind of relief I've often experienced in the presence of, of those on the spectrum who are enormously different from me it's as if I'm seeing, oh, it makes me emotional thinking about it, actually. You know, she's inside me and I perform well. I can make neurotypical people more comfortable. I've done a lot of work to facilitate that. 
And I recognize that it is my blessing and my curse because it's easy to be like, well, and as you said, you know, you are intelligent in a way that, you know, can be digested, although also not, but at least, you know, I can have that conversation with someone where they're telling me that it something doesn't fit and I can cognitively to some extent recognize what they're saying and I can speak words and I can, you know, carry myself in a certain way and adapt myself to situations in a way that, you know, I've harnessed in my life and that Lena in, with her wiring and her way of being in the world, you know, may or may not be able to do that to, to varying degrees because we're different. And I guess I've, it's been a choice between, well, do I, how to kind of honour myself at the same time as using that capacity to adapt. And I think everyone has those kinds of crossroads and even Lena in her way would be constantly encountering these moments where things are presented to her and she has to decide, okay, am I, am I going with this? Am I going to grow with this? What am I moving toward and how do I move toward it? And what do I want? You know, and she'd be making those decisions all the time, even if her decision-making process looks different. And my decision-making process has led me to a space where this is who I am and I've written a book and I've, um, you know, done my best to celebrate and honour my differences whilst ironically and simultaneously becoming perhaps more accessible to people who are different from me, who are neurotypical and i think that there's a lot of a lot to be celebrated about that and a lot that's fabulous about that but there is also an element to which that alienates me from both the part of myself that is lena but also the lenas of the world and i and i struggle with that you know i i guess i cuz whilst our experiences are different and happening simultaneously and both are true you know, there's often a part of me that just wants to curl up and not have to perform and not have to work so hard and not have to kind of consciously and unconsciously overcome myself in order to be just understood a little bit. And there's something that I see in Lena that, you know, has a kind of freedom about it that I dare say, and I maybe this is I don't know if you'll include this in the end, but there's part of me speaking this out loud now that kind of, oh gosh, I mean, it feels quite controversial to say it really, but I kind of, do I envy it? I mean, it's it's so liberated. Like if if I'm preaching a kind of shamelessness that I believe is a gift of autism, she's got that going on a whole nother scale with who she is and how she's wired, that I'm in complete awe of, that I have learned to be scared of in in myself. You know, she's not, she doesn't have time for the things that I would be grappling with and trying to work out mentally and becoming overwhelmed by and whatever. It's like she's functioning in a whole different space from that. And she has obviously her challenges and her obstacles to overcome. But, and, you know, she'd be looking at me maybe, or maybe not, you know, maybe she'd be like, oh, like, 
I'm over here doing, like, that's not even a thing I'm interested in, but I'm certainly looking at her and being like, wow, like there is a kind of an even further place in the descriptions that you've shared with me of her that I'm hugely admiring of and in awe of. And it's like the things that I speak about to do with celebrating difference and the value of differentness. You know, when I kind of look and sound the same and speak the same and express myself the same to just a certain degree, that's almost not as palpable a message as when you then look at Lena. You know, she is the embodiment of, I feel like, what I what I try to get at with like, wow, this person doesn't have words like others have. What are they, how are they expressing themselves and how are we understanding them? And what does it open up about how to perceive the experience of being on the earth to be in her presence and to empathize with her and to try and go inside the experience of wordlessness? I mean, I, you know, I already just want to spend hours with her <laughs> because I feel like that's such a deep part of of me and of everyone, but certainly of me being another autistic person. Like the idea of spending time with her to me, it, it would just be so calming because I have to jump through all these kinds of hoops, you know, still inside myself that are similar but hugely different from what she does. But, you know, I want to I wanna spend all day with her and I, and I would learn so much and I would hope that others for different reasons would feel the same being in her presence. Do you remember Madeline saying that her professor assigned one thing and she brought something back that was really brilliant, but not what was expected? I feel like she Madeline this whole question that I asked as well. I was asking her if she felt like she needed to be healed or fixed from autism. And she, in her way, came back to tell me of why she wanted to spend hours with Lena to learn from her. I find that to be beautiful and true. And so often, what we have experienced. I think I'm not always the best. I will feel and experience and think things. And when it comes to communicating or expressing them, that's difficult, but it's extremely difficult with something so spectacular to me as being the parent of a child with unique differences. And I can so clearly see the way that others perceive, um, for instance, with Elliot, that others perceived him as sick. And he was sick. But I only saw him as so incredible. I mean, everything that made him different, I saw as so perfect. And then the same goes with Lena. So I live in this world of like, there's a tension, I think, of how others may perceive my children versus what I get to see and know. And so when this article came across your screen across my face (laughs) started to look at it I mean I just I couldn't believe what I was reading and then there's something to the fact that it's in a has a broad audience it means a lot of people are thinking about something that has been so hidden in my heart for so long 
you like this and you, like us, wish that more folks could hear stories like this one, then you can help. Write us a review. Share it with someone, maybe on social media. Maybe you want to dial them up and share it with them. You know, get out your phone, dial up a friend and say, hey, you need to listen to this podcast. However you do it, we trust you. If you liked it, please help us spread the word. Atypical is a work of love by me, Matthew Lyle Mooney, with lots of help from Ginny Mooney. But you would not like it near as much without the mastering and help from the one and only Joe Kane. Thank you, Joe. You can find out more about Atypical and our guest at theatypicallife.com. Hit that subscribe button for me. Go ahead. You got this. And as always, we love you. Hearing the road and the journey that you've been on with autism and then following that up with like the most obvious answer to you is no, I wouldn't change the autism. What is it that you would want to see changed? I would love if I Googled autism and like medical definitions weren't the first thing to come up. I would love it if the first thing to come up about autistic people was the amazing things that we're capable of contributing 